Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible, because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being much more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 166, and it's about a map of the world by Sebastian Cabot and the people who talked about it, Richard Eden and Clement Adams. But first, two admin announcements. First, we are less than two weeks away from the Intelligence Speech Conference. The tagline, I believe, is Hear Clever People Talk, and that's basically what it is, an all-day online conference featuring some leading podcasters, including Liz Covard of Ben Franklin's World, which is a fantastic show, and of interest to the listeners of this show in particular, the wonderful David Crowther of the History of England, among lots of other people. So you can go to intelligencespeechconference.com to learn more. And when you use the code TUTOR at checkout to sign up to get your ticket, you will save 10% off of your ticket. So intelligencespeechconference.com and then use the code TUTOR when you get your ticket to save. 10%. Hopefully, I will see you online on April 24th. So the theme this year for Intelligent Speech Conference is Escape. And I'm going to be doing a talk on the time that someone escaped from the Tower of London. You want to know more? You got to come to the Intelligent Speech Conference. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be fun. And then just a quick TutorCon update. Um. Plans are moving along for TudorCon. I'm working on the Friday night entertainment for the party right now. It's going to be so much fun. Um, We've got some great bands lined up and it's just, it's going to be a blast. But tickets are going since the last time I talked to you two weeks ago. um, We've sold like four more tickets. So there aren't very many left. Um, We're at fewer than 10 tickets. So it's October 1st through 3rd, Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. In beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, it's very beautiful in the autumn. You can come and make a trip of it, see Amish country, covered bridges, um, very pretty countryside. Downtown Lancaster also has a lot of history, too. It's not just Amish country. Um, Downtown Lancaster has beautiful cobblestone streets, um, buildings from the 18th century, um, a very, 
I think the world's longest continuously run, not the world's, America's longest continuously running farmer's market um, right in Penn Square. It's a fantastic place to go for lunch. So yeah, October 1st through 3rd, TudorCon, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And we're at the winery right next to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair. It's going to be a lot of fun. And there are fewer than 10 tickets left. So if you need a payment plan, I've said this before, I'm totally open to it. Um, You just got to let me know. You can send me an email or text me through the listener support line, 8016-TESCO, and we will make that happen for you. So no problem on that. Okay, let's talk about the age of exploration in the context of a map. So I've been reading a book called New World Inc. The Making of America by England's Merchant Adventures. It's by John Butman and Simon Target. It's basically a kind of business history of the age of exploration during the Elizabethan period, looking at these financiers and the people who were supporting the explorers and how those business decisions got made. And we've talked about some of that before here on this show with the Muscovy Company, for example. But I'm running across some new names that I hadn't heard before. Some of them are familiar names, Thomas Gresham and John Dee even. But there's some new names that I I hadn't heard before. One of them was Clement Adams. And as I read more about him and kind of dug around his story a little bit, there's not a whole lot, but you start to see some interesting places go off and lead to some interesting other stories going down different rabbit holes. And I realized that I wanted to talk more about it. And so here we are. One thing I found while researching Clement Adams was the February 1883 issue of the journal Science, which has an article in it about a map of the world known as the Sebastian Cabot map that was rediscovered in the mid-19th century in Germany. So about 40 years after it was discovered in 1883, when this article was printed, the Library of Harvard College had just received a copy of the map. And the article in the journal went into great detail about the map and its history. The original of this map is still to this day in the French National Library. And the map is actually a map of the world that Sebastian Cabot created when he was still living in Spain. Sebastian Cabot, of course, was the son of John Cabot. The Cabot family had ties both in Spain and in Bristol and England. They were the earliest explorers in England whom Henry VII even had commissioned to explore the Newfoundland area. The map itself was something that Sebastian Cabot had created to show not just where he had explored and his father had explored, but also the lands that were claimed by different countries, by England and that he had claimed and that his father had claimed. So there's, in addition to the map, there's a lot of notations around the corner. The writing is so super small. I have a picture of it on the show notes for this episode, which is at englandcast.com slash map, englandcast.com slash map. And you can see all around the sides, you need a magnifying glass to be able to read all of these notations, explaining the different, the different voyages that were taken and what land was claimed and by whom. So that's kind of the story on why he created the map. But the map became famous in England, and it would go on to inspire a generation of explorers, including Richard Hakalite, who wasn't an explorer himself, but was one of the earliest travel writers. And it became popular thanks to an engraving created by Clement Adams. 
The short version on Clement Adams is that he was born in 1519. He was a writer and an engraver and a school tutor who happened to tutor some of the leading noblemen in England, the friends of Edward VI. He was educated at Cambridge, he worked for William Cecil, and he wrote about voyages that were happening at sea. It's thanks to him that we know so much about the early voyages of the ships who tried to find the Northeast Passage. He interviewed Richard Chancellor and wrote about the founding of the Muscovy Company, which I also did an entire episode on, so we'll link to that in the show notes too. Adams was born in Buckington, Warwickshire, about 1519, as I said. He was educated at Eton, and then he went to King's College, Cambridge. He was elected a fellow in 1539. He got a BA in 1540 and an MA in 1544. And then, eight years later, he became the schoolmaster to the king's henchmen. And then he died in 1586 and was buried at Greenwich. And those are like the facts that we know about Clement Adams. But the earliest mention of Adams in the literature of the 16th century is by his contemporary, Richard Eden. Richard Eden is actually known as the father of English geography. Eden was a contemporary of Adams, like I said. He translated works of travel writers and explorers into English, which helped to further the interest in exploration in the mid-16th century. Interestingly, also, In the footsteps of the famous alchemist scientist explorers like John Dee, in the middle 1540s, Eden worked as an alchemist for a Richard Wiley, who would later become the sheriff of Nottinghamshire. And for this work, he received a salary of £20 a year. His job was to try to find the secret of turning base metal into gold. So I love this kind of idea that there's this circle of academics and people who are working as alchemists and working as scientists and mathematicians all kind of circling around each other and drumming up support to go out and do these explorations and writing about all of this. And it it must have been such an exciting time to be alive, to think about all the possibilities. It reminds me so much, and this is why I say that the 16th century reminds me so much of the time that we live in now for, for so many reasons, but It reminds me of when the internet was new, and I'm old enough to remember when the internet was new. And it was amazing to think, oh my gosh, you can like log on to an encyclopedia and read stuff. This is so cool. And you can send email and oh my gosh, what's this going to do? And, you know, things have gone the way they've gone. And now we have other issues to deal with. And that early internet utopian might have turned slightly dystopic. Um, in a lot of ways, but it's still an exciting time to think about all these possibilities. And like the way that I'm reaching you now through a podcast, which, you know, 30 years ago did not exist. So I think about this middle 16th century where there was this, this news coming in of Spanish explorations and Portuguese explorations and people translating this travel writing and thinking, oh gosh, like when are we going to get involved in this? And and drumming up funding to go somewhere new, like head north and east to find the Northeast Passage. And also, at the same time, still believing in these medieval ideas of alchemy, which of course would die out later in the Enlightenment. But it must have been such a fun time. And Richard Eden and Clement Adams were certainly in that circle. So in the mid-1550s, Eden translated the first part of Decades of the New World, which was a series of letters and reports of the earliest explorations of Central and South America. 
was published between 1511 and this series of letters was first published in 1511 and then later anthologized. Eden translated the first three decades and published them in 1555, and thus began the genre of English discovery travel writing, which stimulated English exploration in the New World. And I have to say, I need to tell one on myself. I did an episode on Richard Hakalite, and I said that he was England's first travel writer, and I was wrong. Richard Eden was England's first travel writer. So that was a good 30, 40 years before Richard Hakalite. So Richard Eden started to get people excited about all of the potential of the Americas when he published this translated first part of Decades of the New World. His translations were reprinted with supplementary materials in 1577 under a new title, The History of Travel into the West and East Indies. And then Richard Hakalite had the remaining five decades translated into English by Michael Locke, published in London in 1612. Michael Locke is a name that we hear a lot in the context of exploration when it comes to Frobisher's voyages to try to find the Northwest Passage in northern Canada. Michael Locke ran into trouble when Frobisher brought back some rocks that they thought might have been gold, and they tried to do some analysis on it and used those rocks to try to get credit to fund another exploration trip, which didn't work out and didn't pan out. And Michael Locke actually wound up destitute and in a huge amount of financial trouble, um, unable to do any kind of commercial transactions or get credit or anything like that. So that Frobisher voyage bankrupted him. But he was still involved in trying to help um, Richard Hakalite and translate some of these voyages and trying to still be part of that world. So in the translation of decades that Richard Eden did, we learned that Clement Adams was a schoolmaster and not a traveler. Thanks to Adams, like I said, we have the first written account of the earliest English exploration and trade with Russia. Eden writes, whereas I have before made mention how Muscovia was in our time discovered by the direction and information of the said master Sebastian Cabot, who long before had this secret in his mind, I shall not need here to describe that voyage, forasmuch as the same is largely and faithfully written in Latin tongue by that learned young man Clement Adams schoolmaster to the Queen's henchmen, i.e. pages of honor, as he received it at the mouth of said Richard Chancellor. Richard Chancellor was the person in charge of the voyages to Russia. And if you want to know more about that search for the Northeast Passage and the Muscovy Company, I did an episode very early on on that particular adventure. It did not end well for Richard Chancellor, I'll tell you that, but the trade with Russia came out of it. And it's a fascinating story. So check that out. Again, that's in the show notes at englandcast.com slash map. So back to Cabot and his map. He made this map, recording the discoveries of himself and his father, John Cabot, along the coast of Newfoundland in 1497. That was a trip that they took. And there's actually been a lot of argument and debate amongst geographers and historians about what they actually discovered. We can talk about that another time. But that was the point of why Cabot made the map. Supposedly, there was a French map already in existence that was used as a base for this 1544 map, and Cabot's contributions to it were confined largely to notes on his own and his father's voyages, and to his opinions and his views and ideas about the navigation. There are a total of four known editions of the map. 
The first one is this one that appeared in the journal Science in 1883. This is in the French National Library, was created in 1544, and found at a curate's house in Bavaria in 1843. Then there was a map seen at Oxford by Nicholas Heshoff in 1666. That one was drawn supposedly in 1549. Then there was the map engraved by Clement Adams. Richard Hakalite saw that in 1565. And then there was a final one that supposedly was in the private gallery of the King of England that had the date of 1549, but disappeared somewhere in the mid-17th century. And one thing about Cabot is that it's clear that by this point, he was behind other cartographers. For example, he still has Newfoundland as a vast archipelago, and Cape Breton is a mainland. And there's actually French maps issued before this that are more accurate. So we can't take this Cabot map to be the truth of geography or even what leading cartographers at that point thought. Cabot was behind what the general intellectual consensus of the time period was. But it's interesting to see because this was more personal for him. This was him wanting to write down what his father had found, what he had found. And it was like almost a diary. So when Cabot came back to England, the new version of the map was created by Clement Adams. This was in 1549, and Cabot added some things to it. He particularly added a claim about one of his voyages he did, a northern voyage where he reached a channel between 61 degrees and 64 degrees north, which extended westwards for 10 degrees of longitude. This actually was excellent publicity for his view since the map was bought and displayed by merchants and courtiers although no copy has survived. But it was very popular. A lot of merchants bought it, a lot of noblemen bought it, and had it displayed in their homes. So Clement Adams did this did this engraving, and a lot of people bought copies of it, and it became very, very popular. There are several mentions throughout the literature of the mid-16th century of people talking about these engravings being in leading merchants' homes. A lot of merchants who were potentially trying to think about whether or not they were going to invest in a voyage or um, if they were investing and they wanted to show off just how much they knew about the new world, they would have a copy of this map in their shops to show people, look, I'm with the time. I, uh, I'm totally right up there and I know what's going on and check out just how forward thinking I am. So the contemporary of Cabot's map discovered in Germany, the one I mentioned from the 19th century journal Science, is in the French National Library in Paris. The original is now lost. That was in a volume published first in 1594. And then Hakalite makes a statement about the map by Adams. He says that there's a legend relating to the discoveries of the Cabots to be found upon it, described by him as an extract taken out of the map by Sebastian Cabot cut by Clement Adams concerning his Cabot's discovery of the West Indies, which is to be seen in Her Majesty's Privy Gallery at Westminster and in many other ancient merchants' houses. No copy of the map engraved by Adams is now known to exist. The only basis for the assumption that he was a traveler is the association of his name with that of Richard Chancellor. That he did not accompany Chancellor in his first voyage to Russia in 1553 is certain. The name of every person above the rank of an ordinary seaman that accompanied both Sir Hugh Willoughby and Richard Chancellor in that voyage is written down in the pages of Hakalite. The name of the only clerk type of person among the two crews was a John Stafford, who was a minister on board the Edward Bonaventure, which was commanded by Richard Chancellor. So I realize now I'm talking a lot about that Muscovy 
uh, expedition. And like I said, I did do a whole episode on it. But the short version is that Sebastian Cabot had been saying for a long time that it was possible to reach the Indies not by heading northwest, but also by heading northeast above Russia and then coming down the side of Russia. This was something that Cabot had been believing for a long time and had been pushing. It took a good 15, 20 years of pushing by him and getting people involved and, you know, having people believe in him. Also, it was important that the Spanish and the Portuguese at that point had sort of had the the monopoly on the trading routes and on the shipping routes. And so England wanted to find something new, something that nobody else had. And heading north and east seemed like an appropriate thing since they were already pretty far north anyway. So the expedition itself left right at the end of Edward VI's reign. Um, and they ran into trouble right away, got caught off some storms, wound up stuck in Norway. There were a couple of ships. One of them did wind up in the sea frozen and was discovered. They tried to winter uh, in Russia, and I guess the White Sea. And that was discovered a year later with everyone was frozen. But Richard Chancellor did make it and wound up going to Moscow and meeting the Tsar and starting this whole relationship between Russia and England, which led to the formation of the Muscovy Company. And Ivan the Terrible actually proposed marriage to Elizabeth, which is an interesting fun fact. Um, And they made several voyages back and forth. Richard Chancellor himself actually died on one of the voyages when they got caught in a storm off of the coast of Scotland. But he did save the ambassador, the Russian ambassador's life first. And so the Russian ambassador wound up stranded in Scotland and had to make his way down to London. So that's the sort of short version of the Muscovy Company trip and of Richard Chancellor. But you can listen to the whole episode for all of the details for that. So we know all about the Muscovy Company trip because of Clement Adams. So I think it's kind of funny that I did this whole episode on the Muscovy Company years and years ago and didn't actually realize that I was repeating information that came thanks to Clement Adams. I really don't know how I didn't know about this guy before, but I didn't. So I do now. So that's good. So Adams actually interviewed Richard Chancellor when he returned from his first voyage to Russia in 1554, and he published it. It was first printed by Hakolite in his collections of 1589. This is followed by a translation called The New Navigation and Discovery of the Kingdom of Muscovia by the Northeast in the year 1553, enterprised by Sir Hugh Willoughby Knight, and performed by Richard Chancellor, pilot major of the voyage, translated out of the former Latin into English. Probably Richard Hakolite himself did that translation. When talking about Sebastian Cabot, Adams tells how certain grave citizens of London and men of great wisdom and careful of the good of their country began, first of all, to deal and consult diligently with him, Sebastian Cabot, who is described as a man in those days very renowned. His growing reputation is also shown. Uh, the imperial ambassador wrote a letter talking about him on the 4th of September, 1553. This is when the ships were already on their way to Russia. He said, the people of London set a great value on the captain's services and believe him to be possessed of secrets concerning English navigation. And then in 1594, another version of the Cabot map shows up, and that was edited by a German traveler called Nathan Kochhoff. And he was in England in 1565. He was there to pick up antique and curious legends and monumental inscriptions that he could find for his book while he was at Oxford. 
He saw a document with some geographical tables, which had some inscriptions in Latin, but he says that he copied and printed in his volume, filling 22 pages of the book. They are totally in Latin, and they correspond substantially with the Latin inscriptions on the sides of the Cabot map in Paris. Though there were fewer notes and inscriptions in Nathan's map than in the Paris map itself. And so I don't really have a point with this episode, except I wanted to share this cool story of this map and of the people who were circling around this map and circling around each other and leading in part to building this age of exploration that would come 30 years later, 40 years later, leading eventually 70, 80 years later to the colonies in America. But that early on, there was this map and these engravings of this map, which were shown in merchants' houses to show just how with the times they were. And I just think it's kind of cool that there was this schoolmaster who was teaching Edward VI's henchmen, and he engraved this map, and that it would go on to make such a difference to the age of encounter, the age of exploration. I just think it's a cool story. So that that is a little bit about Clement Adams. That's a little bit about how he circled around with all of these people, with Richard Chancellor, with Richard Hacolyte, and then with Eden and his decades and being the father of English geography. I just think it's a really cool story how this map kind of ties everybody together and everybody was circling around this map and these various editions that then were even found in the 19th century and became news and became popular all over again. So I have a picture of the map at the website, englandcast.com slash map. The book recommendation for the week is called New World Inc. The Making of America by England's Merchant Adventures. It's by John Butman and Simon Target. I'll have a link to get it in the show notes. Again, englandcast.com slash map. And let me know what you think about the episode. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016-TESCO. You can join the new Tudor Learning Circle, which is a free social network just for Tudor history nerds. And remember to get your Intelligent Speech Conference ticket, intelligentspeechconference.com. Remember, TudorCon is coming up, and we're selling out of tickets with that. So thanks so much for listening, and I will be back again in a couple of weeks with another pointless Tudor story. Or maybe that one will have a point. I don't know. I haven't thought about it yet. (laughs) All right. Take care, everybody, and thank you so much for listening. (laughs) Bye-bye. Blow, northern wind, a sandal may be sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote board in Bauerbrick, that soul is Samley's on sick. Men's cool maiden of meat, fair and freight of bond. In all this war, flesh of one, board of blood and of bond, never yet in. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.